This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Amen. Well, let's turn to the Word of God together. We're turning, of course, where else? To Acts chapter 2 for a fresh look at what God did all those years ago for his people. So let's open your Bible, if you have one with you, to the second chapter of Acts. If not, I'm going to share it on my screen as well from the New International Version. And let me bring it up for you all over here. Okay, let's read the Word of the Lord together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. 
fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord, and that was Acts chapter 2 that we were reading together. Now, it's interesting, if you go to the very first verse of the book of Acts, Luke's des Luke describes the first book that he wrote, which, of course, was the Gospel of Luke. And he describes Luke as a book in which he, in which he tells of everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, what Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospel of Luke is only the beginning of the works and the speech of Jesus, and clearly the implication is that Acts is what Jesus continues to do and to teach. The day of Pentecost is a mighty act of Jesus Christ. And we often describe this book as the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but really this, is, this book is the Acts of the Exalted Christ. Jesus is moving and Jesus is speaking in power in the book of Acts and still today. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he wasn't put into some long-term deep freeze to be plugged in and thought out when it was time for him to return. Jesus is on the throne, and he is leading his people in mission. Last week, we spoke of the ascension of Jesus. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, he led his disciples to a mountain outside of Jerusalem, and he ascends to heaven, he rises up into the clouds, and as Luke describes in the last chapter of his gospel, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus rises with his hands raised in blessing. 
He goes up into heaven. And now, 10 days after the ascension, from heaven, from the heaven where Jesus ascended, a violent wind comes. It's the Holy Spirit, the blessing sent by Jesus. And there, somewhere in Jerusalem, the followers of Jesus are gathered. There are 120 of them, the 11 disciples, the one, the apostle who replaced Judas, who has committed suicide after betraying Jesus, and the woman and the other followers who had been with Jesus during his life on earth. They're praying. They're waiting to be clothed with power from on high. After Jesus rose from the dead, he commissioned these people to be his witnesses. They were called to go to the ends of the earth and share the good news that Jesus was alive. But first, they must wait. There is no mission apart from the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus himself did not minister without the Holy Spirit. And how much more do these weak and foolish and sinful disciples need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? It's the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost is not a Christian invention. It's one of the three great Jewish feasts of the Old Testament when all Israelites were commanded by God to gather at Jerusalem. And later on, it came to be called Pentecost, which is the Greek word for 50th, because this feast was 50 days after Passover, seven weeks plus one day. But Pentecost is better known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. And this feast commemorated the, the very first days of the wheat harvest. The Feast of Weeks was a grateful celebration that God had cared for his people yet again this year. God had been faithful and he provided sun and rain and the crops had grown. And the Feast of Weeks was therefore a reminder of Israel's total, a total dependence on the grace of God, on the goodness of their covenant Lord. So Pentecost is a festival of the first fruits. It doesn't happen at the end of the harvest, but at the very beginning. And so this feast is about the beginning of divine abundance with the promise of more to come. And how much more is this true, of course, of the first Pentecost in the life of the church? The beginning of divine abundance with the promise of more to come. Pentecost is a special event, of course. It's not one that is continually repeated, but we should not think of Pentecost as the high tide mark of the church and everything since then has been a much lesser experience of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is just the beginning. It's the first fruits. It's the early days of the harvest. There's something else interesting about Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, because over time, the Jews began to celebrate Pentecost as a commemoration of God giving the law to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain into the cloud to receive the law from God and hand it on to the old covenant people. And here in the new covenant, Jesus goes up from the mountain into the clouds to receive not the law from God, but to receive the spirit from God 
and then to transmit that spirit to God's new covenant people. The problem with Israel and the problem with the old covenant was that it gave directions and they were good directions, but it offered no power to obey. Ultimately, all it could do was condemn and bring shame and guilt. And God has promised, I'm going to bring about a new covenant. I'm going to write my law in people's hearts. I'm going to forgive their sins and I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. And now here on the day of Pentecost, this new Sinai, this is about to happen. The apostles and the 120 disciples are all gathered together. They're praying, they're worshiping, they're fellowshipping. It's early in the morning. And then suddenly wind and fire fill the room. And wind and fire in the Bible are signs of the coming of God, like the storm and the fire that Israel saw when Moses went up Mount Sinai. And actually, if you read carefully, what they saw was not, what they heard was not wind, and what they saw was not fire. They heard the sound of wind, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. It's like those who were present struggled to, to put into human words and human experiences this overwhelming divine experience they are receiving. The tongues come clustered, and then they separate, and they come to rest on each disciple individually. What begins as a common experience becomes intensely personal. And all 120 disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, people had the Holy Spirit rest upon them. People experienced power from on high, but no one experienced filling with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 3, John the Baptist says, I only baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now the Baptist's words are coming true. And each of these disciples begins, filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in other tongues or languages as the Holy Spirit enables them. It's a wonderful eruption of the presence and the power of God. And this explosive experience can't remain a secret for long because Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims. This is a city that had a population of maybe 100,000 people. But on these great festivals, the population would swell from 100,000 to over a million people. Every house was crowded and most of the pilgrims were living in tents around the city. Now, these people are from every nation under heaven, but they're not Gentiles. These are Jews and converts to Judaism, but they come from all over the known world. And so there's, the streets are crowded, these pilgrims are passing by, and they hear a sound, a commotion in this building. Whether it's the rushing wind or the people speaking in tongues or both, there's a great noise, a hubbub, and the crowd begins to gather outside the place where these disciples are gathered. And the people are bewildered and they are amazed to hear their own language, their own native languages being spoken. And Luke goes on to list 15 different places, 15 nations represented there in Jerusalem. And these correspond to modern day Iran and Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Greece, and Italy. 
people from all over the known world, very surprised to hear the language of their own city being spoken. And every person there hears in their own heart language, the disciples declaring the mighty works of God. Now, some people have spoken of Pentecost as a gift of human language to aid in cross-cultural mission. And I did hear a story once of a missionary who went overseas with the team and he received the miraculous gift of the new language of the culture they were going to, but he was the only one. And all the other missionaries had to spend five or six years learning the language, except for one guy who just knew it from the very get-go. And that would be a wonderful gift to receive, of course. But I don't think that's what's happening at Pentecost. Because, first of all, pretty much everyone in the crowd, all these pilgrims, certainly would have spoken Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, some, com some combination of those three languages. And the crowd, you, you can see in the story, they're able to talk to each other, and they're able to understand Peter when he preaches. There's no language barrier going on. And besides, when you read the book of Acts, there's no one in Acts who uses a miraculous gift of a human language to preach the gospel. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, you can read about Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, and they don't understand the local language, and they're worshipped as gods before they can stop it because they don't have the miraculous gift of speaking and understanding what's going on. At Pentecost, the gift of tongues does not create clarity. It creates confusion. Look at the reaction of the crowd. They're bewildered, they're amazed, they're perplexed, and some even mock. The tongues don't give any answers, but they prompt a question. And the crowds ask, what does this mean? What's the meaning of this strange event? Tongues are a sign that require interpretation. They require an explanation. And so Peter, the leader of the 12, stands up to explain what is happening. He speaks in a loud voice because there is a big crowd gathered in the street. And Peter announces that what you guys have just seen and heard is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. When God promises to pour out his spirit on all people. And of course, in the Bible, God is the only one who can pour out his spirit. It's not something human beings or angels can do. Only God can pour out his spirit. So it's really quite something that Peter will go on to say that Jesus is the one who gives the spirit. And Joel is prophesying something unusual because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is present, but he's given, he rests upon people, on special people, for special occasions, for special tasks, for a limited time. But here Joel is speaking of a time when God's spirit will be poured out on everybody in Israel, sons and daughters, young men and old men, even slaves and servants. In other words, neither gender nor age nor social class are a barrier to anyone enjoying the full presence and power of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people will one day prophesy, see visions, and dream dreams. And Joel links this gift of the Spirit, this outpouring to 
signs and wonders in the heavens and earth before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. There's going to be blood and fire and billows of smoke. And Joel sees the coming of the Spirit as the beginning of the last days. When the Spirit arrives, the end of history is just around the corner. And Peter ends his quotation of Joel with this statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question, of course, is who is this Lord that we call on and what is his name? And Peter is about to answer that question. And you have to understand that Luke is not giving us a verbatim word-for-word -word record of what Peter is saying. He's giving us Peter's main points. Here's the essence of Peter's gospel that he proclaims. Number one. Jesus was empowered by God to do miracles and wonders and signs. And everyone knew that. That was common knowledge in Israel. And thousands and thousands of people had seen Jesus healing the blind and the deaf, raising the dead, casting out demons. It was common knowledge that Jesus was a miracle worker. Number two, Jesus was crucified. Peter says that this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That is a remarkable verse. That's Acts 2, verse 23. And it is amazing how, in his sermon, Peter links together the wicked actions of human beings with the sovereign purpose of God. The cross was an act of unspeakable evil, the murder of God's only son. At the same time, it's part of God's plan to bring blessing and salvation to the world. Both of those things are true at the same time. And Peter's not even saying that after the fact, God somehow redeemed and turned an evil event for good. The cross was designed by God and planned by him hundreds and thousands of years earlier to bring salvation to his people. And as Jesus explained to the disciples after his resurrection, it was necessary for the Messiah to be rejected and suffer and die. But Peter goes on, number three, that Jesus is risen. God raised Jesus from the dead because death could not hold him. It was not strong enough. And Peter quotes David's words in Psalm 16 about God not abandoning him to the grave or letting his Holy One see decay. And David can't possibly be talking about himself. His grave is right over there. You can walk a couple of blocks and go and visit it yourself, Peter says. David is speaking of the Messiah, his greater son who would come after him and fulfill all the promises of God. And God, Peter says, has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. There are 120 people right here to whom the risen Lord has appeared. And they are prepared to testify to you that he is not dead. He is alive. And now Peter is ready, finally, to answer the crowd's question about what this commotion meant, the speaking in tongues. Here's the key verse in this chapter, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father 
the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. God hasn't just raised Jesus from the dead. He's given his son supreme executive power. He's placed him at his right hand on the throne. And Peter quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here's Peter's conclusion to his sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's a fearless sermon. And it's hard to believe that this is the same disciple who tried to rebuke Jesus for going to the cross, the same craven man who denied Jesus three times for fear of a servant girl. But Lucas told us at the end of his gospel that after Jesus rose from the dead, he opened his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and to realize how they all pointed to him. And Peter has learned those lessons well. And now Peter has been filled by the Spirit. And the first evidence of the Spirit's filling in Acts, of course, is the speaking in tongues, but that immediately goes on to the bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. You know, it's funny because we think of Pentecost as the day of the Holy Spirit. That's his day on the church calendar. And it's true. But the focus of Peter's sermon is not the Holy Spirit and his gifts. His sermon is all about Christ. Christ's miracles, Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection, Christ's exaltation to God's right hand, and Christ's pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Some people speak of the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity, and I, I don't think that's true because the Holy Spirit has inspired a great deal of scripture about himself and his work and his gifts. He wants to be known and he wants to be worshipped. But the Spirit's greatest work is to lead people to Jesus and to help them find their fullness in him. And the more someone is filled with the Spirit, the more they will burn with love for Jesus and be filled with boldness to share the good news about him. And notice, by the way, too, in, in Peter's sermon, how the whole Trinity, the whole three-in-one God, works as one in salvation. The Father exalts the Son and gives the Son the Spirit, and Jesus, in turn, pours him out on his waiting people. Peter is speaking very direct words in his message. You killed him. You crucified him. And the people who are listening are stabbed to the heart. They experience piercing conviction, clearly also a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And they cry out together, what shall we do? And Peter doesn't hesitate. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, you have sinned. You have done a terrible thing. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So turn from your sins back to God and be baptized. Be immersed in this new reality of Jesus. And not only will your sins be forgiven, but you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just like we have. This is not a one-time event. 
reserved for just a small group of people. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the first fruits, divine abundance with the promise of more to come. It's for you, Peter says, and for your children, and for all who are, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call. I don't think Peter fully realized what he was saying. I'm sure at that time he was only thinking of the Jewish diaspora, Israelites spread across the nations. But Peter is going to learn as Acts goes on that God's plan is even bigger than he dreamed because God will send Peter and the other apostles to the Gentiles. He will overcome their reluctance and bring the good news of the risen Jesus to all of the nations because Jesus is calling them as well to come bow before him, worship him, and receive his salvation. And this is the beginning of the church, the New Testament people of God, because the crowd responds, and they respond massively. 3,000 are baptized that day and added to the disciples. I mean, that must have been incredible when you think there were only... Uh, there's only a core of 120 disciples to begin with. Now that's exploded to 3,000. So each original disciple, after just a few weeks with Jesus, would have started a small group with 25 new people to disciple in following Jesus with them. Uh, in his commentary, Andrew Lincoln says that Pentecost produced not simply spirit-filled individuals, but a new community. Pentecost creates the church because the Holy Spirit is not about private religious experiences for my own enjoyment. He is about creating the new people of God who are filled with love, who fellowship and worship and go on mission together. This is a group of people who are on the way of Jesus together. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayer. And they share everything they have in common, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. Jesus is still on the throne, and he still has his hands raised in blessing over his people. And he has not stopped pouring out his spirit on thirsty ground. He will give his spirit to everyone who is hungry and desires to experience his presence and power in their own life. We can't follow Jesus in our own strength, and we certainly cannot fulfill his mission with human power alone. And it is deeply foolish to attempt this on our own. Although, of course, we all do, and we are so slow to learn this lesson. You know, we can keep the machinery of religion going for a long time without him. But it's always going to feel dry and dead, joyless and meager. Not just, not just powerless, but meaningless. You know, we are living in troubled times, as this week again has shown us. And the world, which is in such pain right now, does not need sleepwalking, comfortable Christians. The world 
needs people who are filled with the power of the living God. And that is the only thing that is going to cause them to gather in the streets outside asking, what does this mean? So, Pentecost 2020. Let's ask ourselves, are we content just to go on as before? Are we satisfied with where we're at, with what we're achieving? Or are we seeking him? Are we willing to wait, to do nothing except pray and seek God and ask to be clothed with power from on high? King Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And he has received the promised Holy Spirit, and he will gladly fill all who seek that spirit from his hand. So let's pray and wait on the Lord together. Loving God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise you for raising Jesus from the dead, the first fruits of your new creation, and also for sending your spirit that we too may have new life in Christ. Thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you and we praise you for the power and promise lead us and guide us in all our ways. Lord, help us to live in accordance with your spirit setting our minds on what the Spirit desires so that we may be joyfully alive in Christ. Thank you for giving us your Spirit. We thank and praise you that the Spirit testifies to us that we are your children, that through the Spirit we can approach you in confidence as our compassionate Father. Thank you that as co-heirs with Christ, we will share in his glory. Comfort us with the knowledge that your spirit also helps us in our weakness. And he intercedes for us according to your will. So Lord, we thank you for giving us your spirit and we cry out afresh that you would fill us anew. In the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.